my Redeemer. Amen. Well, it's certainly not lost on me that today is September 11th. And as we remember the events of September 11th, 2001, uh, a lot of us have had very, very significant experiences with that. I myself would not be standing here today before you were it not for September 11th, 2001. God used those tragic events of that day to snap me out of my selfishness and make me realize that everything in this world is temporary and that there's only one thing that's permanent and eternal, and that's God. And I'd better get to know that God very, very quickly. So with all the kind of ferocity that was running away from God, I did a 180 and I started to run towards God in that ferocity. And God used the events of September 11th to do that. I was a Bergen County kid. I fled to Sussex County as fast as I could because I don't like going back to Bergen County. But I was a Bergen County kid, so I remember looking at that skyline all the time. We'd go there on class trips. I think I went there on my prom and went to Windows on the World or something, you know? I thought, how in the world could those buildings fall down? It's, it's impossible. I was working as a corporate monkey at the time when that happened, and, and we had heard that it had happened. You could see the skyline from our roof, our roof of the building. So I remember running up to the roof of the building and overlooking the skyline and just seeing a plume of black smoke coming out from the skyline. And I realized this was actually happening. Those buildings really did fall down. Think as a Jewish person would in the first century, staring up at the 200-foot walls of the temple complex. These stones, hundreds and hundreds of tons each, stacked one on top of the other. This complex so massive, the idea of that temple falling to the ground is inconceivable. You don't even imagine what, especially in that day and age, what firepower could even knock such a structure down. It's, it's physically impossible. But those stones did fall down. The temple did fall down. And Jesus told them clearly it would happen, and he told them why. In such a catastrophic event, people could barely understand and barely comprehend, and he tells them all of this ahead of time. Why? So that they could trust his words when it does. And we've got a lot of work to do this morning, so let's dig in. This is our first week back in Matthew. We spent the summer in Psalms. And when we last left our heroes in June, before the summer started, Jesus was opening an epic can of rant on the Pharisees. He was pronouncing woe upon them. Remember we said hypocrisy will eventually be judged. That is very, very important because we've got to remember that Jesus didn't merely come to save. Jesus came to judge Israel for their failures, specifically Israel's leaders for their failures. He, he came to pronounce judgment on the Jewish leaders for their utter failure. They twisted the word of God. They made it all about themselves in some sick power trip. They twisted the redemptive plan of God and made it all about Israel when it should have been for the whole world. Worst of all, they rejected Jesus Christ, the Messiah and said he was not the Messiah. If anyone should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, it should have been the people that had the Old Testament Pentateuch memorized, you would think. But they saw him as a threat to be done away with rather than the fulfillment of Scripture. 
And for all this and more, Jesus pronounced woe and judgment on them in chapter 23 for their legalism, for their hypocrisy, and for their sin. Now Jesus tells us more about what their judgment will look like. Now, warning, again, we're entering deep waters. Matthew 24 may be the most controversial chapter in all of Scripture. Welcome to Highlands Bible Church. We don't skip the hard stuff. I was saying to Melanie as we're driving around... uh, Vernon looking at other churches and saying, like, I don't think they're going to preach Matthew 24 this week. Why not? Because you've got to be crazy to preach Matthew 24. That's why there's so many different understandings about it. Jesus is going to alternate between talking about the judgment that will come upon Jerusalem in the first century in that context, and then alternate to his final coming, the final judgment that will happen in the world. Let's jump in. Look at verse 1. And Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. If we pause there, it's very significant that Matthew tells us that Jesus was headed out of the temple. And as he was, his disciples were commenting on the magnificence of these buildings. Imagine a couple podunk country boys in the big city of Jerusalem, right? Looking like we do when we go to Manhattan. We just stare straight up, right? That's exactly what they were doing. They were looking at the temple in all its glory and majesty. It's gleaming marble. There's the stones, again, hundreds of tons. Walls, hundreds of feet high. And they're just looking at all this. And they say, Jesus, look at all this. And he says, yeah. It's all going to be a pile of rubble. Imagine what they thought. All we have today, of course, are drawings of the temple because that actually did happen. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed by the Roman army, fulfilling the prophecy. And so if we have just a drawing of something, I mean, you can see those little ant-like creatures. Those are people. And this is, it's just the temple mount. Like the temple walls are beyond this and they're hundreds and hundreds of feet tall. It gives you some sort of perspective. Even today, if you were to go to the temple, when Melanie and I went in November, we could see some of those other pictures that are coming up right there. There's, of course, the famous Western Wall. And even that, you can see the only kind of standing wall that's left of the temple, the the perspective of the people and how big that is and how large the stones are. I think there's another couple pictures there. This is actually the south entrance to the temple where the ruins are. And this is looking at the Mount of Olives, which is going to be really, really important in a minute because we're going to see the perspective that they have. And I think there's one more. And there is actually looking down from the Mount of Olives onto the Temple Mount right now. There's, of course, a mosque there, the Dome of the Rock, that gold uh, dome right there, a very, very contended piece of land in Jerusalem itself. There's some sort of perspective even today of how massive the temple complex really is. And so the disciples are amazed. They're looking at the temple buildings and Jesus says, yes, this is all going to be destroyed. And can you imagine their reaction? They must have been speechless. I mean, first of all, what? Second of all, uh, how? And third of all, what? What, what do you mean? This is, all, this is blasphemy. This is where the presence of God is. Do we understand that? The temple itself is going to be destroyed. Like, Jesus got in trouble for saying that, and they misinterpreted him. 
Can you imagine what they were thinking? Well, quickly they went beyond the what and the how, and they, of course, arrived at the when. And Jesus continued out of the temple and headed up to the Mount of Olives. And they asked him in verse 3, as he sat down on the Mount of Olives, again, picture that, the view that that is of the whole temple. You can get a panoramic view of the whole temple from the Mount of Olives. As he's sitting up there, they say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the signs of your coming and of the close of the age? Jesus, when will destruction of the temple be? And then they ask a second question. Because as you may well imagine, there's no way, even if they thought there was a possibility that the temple could be destroyed, there's no way that they were going to be able to separate the temple being destroyed from the end of the world. If the temple is going to be destroyed, then the end of the world must be on its heels. Because I can't even imagine a world without the temple if you're a first century Jew. But these are actually two different questions. Jesus, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will the signs of your coming, your second coming be? We believe in the bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ as told in the scriptures. Right? That's the end of the story. The end of the story when Jesus returns, when he judges the earth for, uh, in, in finality, and he sentences those who have rejected him to an eternity of hell, and he rewards his followers an eternity of heaven. And he culminates then the new heavens and the new earth. Matthew makes it very, very clear in this context that the first question has to do with the destruction of the temple, and the second question has to do with the return of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, in the second question, he actually uses the word parousia, which is, which is the word for the return of Jesus Christ. Hence the massive controversy over this chapter. Because Jesus is going to be talking about both of these things, and sometimes it's not clear, clear when he's going back and forth between which one. And I'm going to put my cards on the table up front, and I'm going to say this whole first verse, verses 1 through 35. Right, we're doing it in two chunks. Part two is next week. But this whole section, 1 through 35, is actually all talking about the physical destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. I know there are differing opinions on that, but that's where I am. Uh, as we've studied and, and prayed. Next week, again, we're going to talk about part two, the coming of Jesus. But this week, Jesus is answering the first question. When will the temple be destroyed and how? That seems what is most logically contextual to me. Let's see if Jesus can help us shed any light on this. Look at verses, look, verse four. Jesus answered them, right? This is the first thing he says. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginnings of birth pangs. This is actually amazing. And Jesus says, before I go any further, guys, before we open this can and talk about what's going to happen, don't be deceived. Don't be led astray, he says. Things are going to get absolutely crazy. There will be false messiahs. Some people will believe them. When the temple falls, he says, people will think I am coming back. But he says, not yet. He says, the end is not yet. He says, this, this must, he says, this must be, this, is, this has to happen. 
Worse yet, he says, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Do not panic. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, but that's not the end yet. All of this is just labor pains. As the Roman army approaches, you will hear rumors about how close they're getting. You'll hear rumors about all the other skirmishes that they're having in all the other towns. And as they get closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem, you will hear that. He says, do not panic. You will hear gossip about how bad things are going to be. This isn't the end. This is just labor pains, he says. I think we've had about 37 babies born in Highlands Bible Church in the last two weeks, and the train is still rolling. And so moms can certainly relate to the idea of labor pains, right? Us dads, we can, we can try. We can relate to labor pains. Is the baby there yet? No. The labor pains are there. What does that mean? Things are happening. They're set in motion, and they're not going to stop, right? Jesus says, that's what the destruction of the temple is going to culminate. That's what's going to happen. Just like a mom having labor contractions, it's going to start everything in motion. Jesus is telling him that things are drawing to a close. Soon I will be killed. I will be crucified. I will resurrect from the dead. I will ascend back to the Father, right? He goes, but now the temple will be destroyed, and that will continue on. What is set in motion for the end times? Church, we remain in the end times now. Like The end times were set in motion when Jesus ascended back to the Father. When, when the work was done perfectly, that's when the end times started. Right? And we see that the first big milestone in that is the destruction of the temple that comes shortly thereafter. Right? Please, I will say this just like Jesus said, do not be deceived. Do not listen to the YouTube false prophets that say that they have read the newspaper, they have looked at CNN and Fox News, and therefore they can tell that the end is near. Don't. We are in the end times. Don't believe the local pastors who say there's some sort of secret rapture coming soon. That's not what this passage is talking about. We need to keep a balanced and most of all a biblical perspective as we wade into this topic together. And what I hope is clear up until this point is Jesus is telling them some, some specifics on how things are going to intensify when in their context, in what's going on in first century Jerusalem. And he tells them more. Look at verse 9. It says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus tells them what it's going to be like when the Romans drop the hammer on the Jewish people. People will be arrested People will be executed. People will be hated. They will betray one another. They will turn one another into the authorities. People will turn their backs on their friends and their family. There will be a civil war that will come that precedes this. People will fall away from the faith when they see it all happening. Again, false prophets will capitalize on this chaos. They will, they will lead many astray. Because of the rampant 
evil that people see because of the massive betrayals, because of the massive persecution and, and executions. It says their love, some of, the, some of the people's love will grow cold. We see that now, don't we? I, I don't even know if I can believe in God. Like, read the news. Like, how in the world can there be a God of love when we see what's going on in the news and see what the world around us? That's what they're saying. It's going to be so bad that people are going to be like, I can't do this anymore. This can't, God can't exist. How can God allow the destruction of this city, his people, his temple? He gives them additional instruction in verses 12 and 14. Look at this. I'll read it again. And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus says, okay, good. I've set the foundation. This is what it's going to look like, okay? Here's what you've got to do. Endure to the end. You've got to endure through this. He who endures to the end will be saved. And guess what? We've still got work to do. The gospel still needs to be proclaimed. The gospel needs to go out. In fact, he says, the gospel must go out to all nations before the end can come. I will lose none of whom the Father has given me. The gospel has to go out, and it has to go out to everybody. All the elect must come into the family before I return. This is all part of the process, Jesus says, and it's starting. Can you imagine this? Jesus telling the disciples not to be deceived. He's going to tell them what's going to happen, how bad it's going to get, and then he says you have to endure to the end, and guess what? You still have work to do. Amidst the city burning and the temple falling to the ground, he says endure to the end with the preaching of the gospel, with the work of the church. I'll say it like this. In the midst of adversity, don't be deceived into being complacent. In the midst of adversity, don't be deceived into becoming complacent. I know this is hard to think about. We live in Vernon, Sussex County, beautiful. We don't have a temple. We don't have a, a city. We don't have the center of, of God's worship. We don't have uh, the old covenant where the temple housed the presence of God. We don't have a nation, our nation, that is not God's chosen nation. But try to imagine that. But try to imagine this building gone, right? It was really easy for me to try to imagine this building gone a couple Christmas Eves ago when I got a phone call from the fire department at 1 o'clock in the morning that said, your building's on fire, and you should go there right now. And also, please describe your truck so that the fire department can let you into the scene. I, I live nine minutes from here. That was the worst nine-minute drive of my life because I thought I would roll up on the church seeing it in flames. And it made sense. Why? Because we just had a Christmas Eve service where there were 200 people with candles. So I'm like, oh, yeah, this is bad. This is definitely... And I got here, and there was nothing. It was a water leak that had gotten into the alarm system. But try to imagine, right? So soon all this will be gone. Soon it will all be in flames. Thousands upon thousands of people will die in horrific ways. Josephus and other historians tell awful details of what the Roman siege and the end looked like. Famines, earthquakes, wars, massive Christian persecutions. It sounds a little bit like 2022, right? Sounds a little bit like things are still going. Things are still happening. Things are still on track. That's because, again, it's been happening ever since Jesus left the earth. The tribulation is ongoing. Try to tell a Christian in North Korea or Afghanistan that the great tribulation has not happened. 
they will laugh in your face because they say, you have no idea what I deal with every single day of this. You Americans don't have to deal with that, but I do. The Great Tribulation continues. It's, it's ongoing. If that isn't bad enough, he says again, false prophets, here they come, running around, trying to capitalize and cash in on the spiritual chaos. They claim to hear direct revelation from God about what all the signs might mean and all of that. They want to speak a prophetic word upon the people from God in the midst of this chaos. In the middle of that, Jesus says, oh, BT Tubbs, don't forget, you still have to preach the gospel. You still have to do the work of the church. It still needs to go out. You still need to do the work that I have called you to. The work of the church must go on and we need faithful people to endure to the end and do it. In fact, Jesus said the end can't come until the gospel is preached to all nations. Sometimes people can misapply this passage and then turn it into some sort of race against the clock. Say, if we can get the gospel to every single people group, then we're done. Tap out. Jesus is coming back. That's not what this passage is saying. We've got to remember that. That's the plan of God. We can't, we can't use this as some sort of we're going to manipulate God into returning, right, by just making sure that the gospel goes out to all people. That's not what it's saying. He isn't telling them when he's coming back. He's telling them how bad things are going to gut with the destruction of Israel and how they need to conduct themselves in the midst of it. For us, the word is the same. We must faithfully endure in the midst of spiritual and societal chaos and not get complacent. Yes, society is continuing to break down. Violence prevails in all our major cities. The public schools are getting darker and darker. Politics is getting more and more violently divisive. Christians are becoming increasingly the enemy, and Jesus says it's clear. You have to endure to the end. There's still work to do. Do not be deceived into getting complacent. In fact, he says he endures to the end will be saved. And this is where we get into the already and the not yet of our salvation, right? Like, we are saved the moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we are justified. We go from the guilty column to the innocent column. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. But we're not home yet. We're still here, grinding it out in Sussex County. So there's a sense where we're not saved yet. We're saved positionally. We're not saved geographically, locationally, right? We've got to get there. When Jesus says, how do you get there? Endurance. He who endures to the end will be saved. And don't get obsessed when Jesus is returning or what the end times events mean. We are not going to miss it. Don't worry. That's where he goes next. Look at verse 15. And when you see the abomination of the desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. So when we start talking about the end times, we inevitably start talking about Old Testament prophetic language. And to that end, Jesus makes a beeline for the Old Testament prophet Daniel. Not a direct quotation of the prophet Daniel. It's actually in three places, in chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, but the concept is there. Regardless, here's the point. 
Matthew's Jewish readers would have instantly understood what Jesus meant. Oh, the abomination, abomination of desolation. That's Daniel. That's what he's talking about. Daniel was a prophet after the fall of uh, Israel the first time. Jerusalem fell 586 B.C. And they were all exiled to Babylon, right, in judgment for their rejection of God, their idolatry, which he warned them for hundreds and hundreds of years. So Daniel, oddly enough, is speaking this prophecy from the exiled people of Israel after their city was already destroyed. And this concept of the abomination of desolation he mentions. Matthew says, so when you see that standing in the holy place, then it's time. Run for your lives, he says. There's no shortage of massive confusion about what this means, right? Dispensationalist theology loves to say this is the Antichrist. I don't see the Antichrist anywhere in this picture. We've got to stay in context, right? Paul, in context, text, uh, right, good. In Daniel's context, this was fulfilled in 167 B.C. when the abomination of Syrian general Antiochus stood in the holy place of the temple and he sacrificed pigs on the altar of God. So you better believe that's ringing in their ears. Jesus is simply saying with this, don't get tripped up in this. Jesus is simply saying that kind of abomination is going to happen again. Remember what happened? Remember what Daniel said? Jesus says, yeah, they're going to be that kind of abomination again. Luke actually smooths the whole thing out for us in his parallel account. Luke 21.20 simply says this, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. What's the big desolation? Well, how about the Roman army standing outside the city ready to kick in your front door? And they're going to come in there, and they're not going to stop at the city gates and ask people nicely to come out. They're going to go marching through the city. And worse yet, they're going to go marching into the temple, waving their flags, which had eagles on them. And if you're a Roman citizen, you worship the emperor. So this is, this is another army, a holy word, that is descending on the city of Jerusalem, then marching into the holy place. And guess what's happening in the holy place? There are still priests there. They're still doing their sacrifices. They're still doing their thing. And guess what the Roman army does? Slaughters them. Blood all over the altar, all over the inside. You think that's not an abomination? That's exactly what he's talking about. That's what's going to happen. There's going to be an enemy army marching right into the most holy place. He says, when you see that about to happen, flee. He says, this, this is exactly what's going to happen. And Jesus is speaking about the siege of Jerusalem. If you're not familiar with what a siege is, when you know, cities used to have walls, right? And so if an enemy army would want to come and invade that city, they would then just block off access going in and access coming out of the city. And then it's a giant waiting game. The army outside has their campfires and all their food that they brought and everything else, while the people inside the city then slowly starve under horrific conditions. That's what's going to happen. That's what Jesus says. Jesus is warning them, when you see the abomination of the pagan army ready to destroy Jerusalem, run for your life. He says, if you're in Judea, don't go back to the city. Go to the mountains. He says, this is usually the opposite, right? Because in those days, cities had walls and guards and people with swords and things, right? You would run into the city for safety. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't run into the city. That's where everything's going to happen. He says, flee to the mountains. He says, get out of there. Jesus tells them, if you're on the roof, 
which was an expanded living space because it was flat. Don't go downstairs and get your keys and your cell phone. Just go. Just maybe jump from roof to roof because they're all flat and they're all close together and then go and run. If you're in the field, don't go back and get your coat. Just go. Woe to you, he says, if you're pregnant or you're nursing infants. And we have to look no further with the news sites of seeing Afghanistan refugees, mothers with their babies in tow. How horrific is that? You have to keep not only yourself alive, but you have to keep your baby alive. He says, it's going to be especially hard for them. He says, pray that it doesn't happen in winter when it's the rainy season and the wadis fill up and you can't go anywhere or when it's freezing cold. He says, pray it doesn't happen on the Sabbath when travel restrictions are very, very restricted. That's actually really important because what is Jesus saying right there? He's actually saying this is going to go down when there's still a Sabbath, when there's still an old covenant in effect enforcing that Sabbath. So again, what context are we talking in? First century. Here it is. He says, pray that that doesn't happen in winter on a Sabbath. And Jesus then continues with more warnings. Look at verse 21. He says, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not has been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and will never be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead people astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Jesus says that there will be unbelievably, unbelievable tribulation on a scale that has never been seen before or never been since. The siege of Jerusalem will be absolutely brutal. Again, this isn't just chronicled here. We have, we have extra-biblical secular historians like Josephus or Flavius, and they tell us how bad it is. Cannibalism, disease, horrific, horrific conditions massive starvation, civil war. Jesus says that in God's mercy for the sake of his elect, it will be cut short from history. We know that the siege lasted about five months, but it could have been much longer. And Jesus goes back to warning about false prophets again. Once again, don't be deceived. People are going to try to capitalize on this. People are going to try to say, no, there's the Messiah. He's going to save us. He's here. And wouldn't that be the best thing? Of course people want to believe that. They want to believe the Messiah is coming to save them in the midst of this. Even the elect, he says, will be tempted to believe it, but of course they cannot. They will not, for God will sustain his true children to be faithful. That's why he's warning them beforehand. He's like, guys, when this happens, remember, don't fall for him. He says something very important. Don't panic. As bad as it gets... Keep your wits about you. Stay faithful. Don't be deceived into believing I have returned. I haven't yet. And again, look at verse 27. He says, you want to know how obvious it's going to be when I return? It's going to be like lightning. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the east is from the west, so will the parousia. Again, the Greek word for return of Christ. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Jesus says, look, it's going to be that obvious. You can see lightning from miles around. You're not going to miss lightning. We are not going to miss the coming of Jesus Christ. We have to remember. It's what he's encouraging us. 
Verse 28 is a super weird proverb. There's a lot of ink spilled on what it means. I think most commentators and scholars overthink it, which is usually my tendency. Jesus has just warned them about what? Time and time again about false prophets, right? Like vultures that will gather around a corpse, a dead animal. Maybe he means the vultures, like the false prophets, will gather around this time. They will gather around this time of, of uh, civil war, of siege, of destruction, and they will try to feed upon what's going on here. That's my personal bet. It could be tied back to verse 27 too that says, yeah, it's going to be, uh, Jesus' return will be as obvious as vultures gathered around uh, a corpse in the desert or something. And Jesus, again, warning them about false prophets, warning them to be faithful in the midst of spiritual and societal chaos. All these false prophets still gather in one place. It's called YouTube. I don't recommend typing in Matthew 24 to YouTube and watching anything on YouTube. Please do not do that. It's still happening today. But don't miss Jesus' big point, okay? He says, don't listen to them. Even in the midst of suffering horrific conditions, he says, keep the true faith. And I'll say it this way. In the midst of adversity, don't be deceived into believing false theology. In the midst of adversity, don't be deceived into believing false theology. This is a massive problem today. There is so much bad teaching about the end times. And churches right down from the road from us spew false teaching about eschatology regularly. Again, YouTube false prophets, they deceive millions. I, I, when I see one of these false prophets on YouTube telling me about how China is the abomination of desolation and the eagle's going to fly over the corpse of the United States or whatever the heck they're saying, right? I get so upset when I see how many views these things have. Millions. And millions of views. Books like Left Behind sensationalize things that aren't scriptural. The list goes on and on and on. Why do we buy it? Why do we buy into it? Why do we watch it? Because things can get bad, right? And we need hope. Sure, we're not surrounded by an enemy army ready to burn Vernon to the ground, but still we feel the subtle, steady pressure of the world kind of closing in on us. We know the rejection by our friends and family for our faith. We know the marginalization from our culture that has turned against us in a biblical worldview. Like many in Israel, we see the corruption of our society and it causes our love to be tempted to grow cold. So it's tempting to believe a sensational false prophet with wild prophetic claims, but that's not what we're called to and Jesus warns us to not be deceived into believing false theology. The public and private means of grace are what we're called to, but yet that's so incredibly boring. Read my Bible, pray, fast, attend public worship, serve, give. Yeah, but what else you got? Like, come on. I mean, everybody does that. Like, speak a word into this. Like, you know, let's really get into it. Give me something that I can, I can my ears can be tickled about this. It hasn't changed. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. There's going to be false prophets going around in the midst of this. And there are false prophets today. We don't need to know the timing of his return. 
Can we just say that? We don't need to know the timing of his return. In fact, that's what Jesus is making clear because he's talking all about the first part of what's going to happen during the siege of Jerusalem and he's not even going to say, talk about any of the timing of his next part, which we'll see next week. He's not going to answer the second question. He's not going to say, oh, I'm coming back. Uh, hmm, let me tell you. We're going to find out even Jesus doesn't know. We're going to talk about that next week. I'll tell you the timing of the destruction of Israel, he says, but as for my coming, I'm not going to tell you that. But it's going to be as obvious as a lightning flashing. You're not going to miss it. You won't miss it. Don't worry about the details of what will happen. Focus on being faithful. Don't give in to uh, the practice of CNN and Fox News eschatology. Don't be deceived into believing false theology. Keep your spiritual wits about you. There will be many who will try and deceive you. And do you know what else will be obvious? My judgment on Israel. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and with all the tribes of the earth they will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Cards on the table here. If you were with me and you interpreted this passage to be directly about the fall of Jerusalem, you probably got off the train at verse 29. And a lot of people do. A lot of really smart people do. I still love you if you got off the train at verse 29. I don't see it but that's not the most important thing, okay? Let's keep that in mind. We've got to keep some of these things open-handed, right? As my good friend Dr. Boyce says, I look forward to being corrected in glory, if that is actually what the case is, right? I think this whole chunk, again, from verse 1 to 35 is directly talking about the judgment of Israel as seen in the fall of Jerusalem, and I'll tell you why. First, look at the first word of verse 29. He says, immediately after those days, we're not talking something that's going to happen in the distant future. This is going to be immediately after the tribulation of the siege and invasion of Israel. Something even more catastrophic is going to happen. Second, the temple itself will be actually destroyed. This is a catastrophe in and of itself of cosmic proportions. And I keep trying to paint that picture because us in 2022 America, we try and think, yeah, it was a big building and it fell down. No, no. It was the center of worship for the Old Covenant. It, it was tens of thousands of people who were slaughtered by an enemy pagan army. It was the presence of God in a physical building on earth. And for that to be destroyed, that is of cataclysmic proportions. It is the end of the Jewish era. It shows that God's presence is no longer physically on earth in a building as it was with Israel. And just as Jesus left the temple and walked out to the Mount of Olives and then started talking about this, guess what? God's presence is going to leave the temple. This is exactly the language that Jesus uses. God's presence will now be, of course, in Jesus himself. God's presence will now be with us, the believers in Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, which will come to inhabit each and every one of us the moment that we declare faith in Jesus Christ. This is a cataclysmic change and requires cataclysmic prophetic language. And this is exactly the language that Jesus has used. He calls together quotes from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, from Joel, and they use these words talking about one thing, talking about judgment. 
They use the words of the sun being darkened, the moon not shining, the stars falling from the heavens, and the powers of heaven being shaken in terms of one thing, judgment. We have that song sometimes way back in the 80s when worship music was terrible. You know, behold, he comes riding on the clouds. You do not want to see God coming riding on the clouds. That's a really bad thing. It means judgment. And so, again, we're looking at this from a 2022 American Christian perspective. Jewish readers, first century, are going to say, that's all bad. That means God's judgment. It happened once to us, and it's apparently going to happen to us again. It's prophetic language that communicates judgment, and it's coming for Israel at the hands of the Roman army. The whole world, he says, will see the Son of Man coming, not at the parousia, different Greek word. This is your average, everyday, garden variety, erkamai Greek word, meaning coming in and out. He does not use the word for second coming here. And they will mourn, but it will be too late. Commentator France puts it this way. Jesus' words were here suggest then, in light of their Old Testament background, that the people of Jerusalem will recognize what they have done to their Messiah, but their mourning will be prompted by seeing his eventual vindication and triumphs when it will be too late to avert the consequences of having rejected him. Another commentator says this, God's coming on the clouds is a metaphor for God's judgment in the Old Testament, and he gives some of the verses that I was just talking about. Therefore, Jesus is saying that he will execute the Creator's perfect justice upon that generation of unbelieving Israelites when he promises to come on the clouds. After the cross, after the resurrection, the ascension, he will take his seat in the heavenly realms on his rightful throne in glory and power and honor, and he will rule and he will reign the world from there over this new era, over the church era, and where the work of the church, watch this, where the work of the church will then go out like angelic messengers from the four corners of the earth, gathering all his elect, how? Through the preaching of the gospel. He's going to say, that's what this is going to happen. That's what this is all going to set in motion. That's us, church. That's Highlands Bible Church. We're part of that. We proclaim the gospel. We take part of this. This isn't talking about the future return of Jesus here. The prophetic judgment on his nation Israel for their failure is what Jesus is talking about here. And it will be for all the world to see. Now, yes, he will come again. We're going to talk about that next week. And certainly there's foreshadowing here, right? There's tentacles kind of of that in this, right? It's not so neat and tidy. First, in context, this is the judgment of the nation of Israel and the inauguration of the new church age and the new covenant. The presence of God no longer in the temple because the temple's a pile of rocks. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more priests. There's no more any of that. There's the word of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There's the work of the church proclaiming the gospel. Jesus is telling the disciples to be wise, to be ready, to be prepared, to believe in him, to trust in him, and that's where we end. Look at verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out leaves, you know that summer is near. And so also, when you see these things, you know that he is near, the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus lands the plane here and provides a nice, neat little summary. 
a lesson from creation. He says, when you look at the trees and you see little leaf buds coming out, what is that telling you? Spring is coming, summer. Again, this, this process that is in motion. You can't stop spring from coming. And Jesus is saying, this is what's happening. Be wise. When you see these things, the destruction of Jerusalem is coming. And then after that, that's going to set in motion everything, which is then going to culminate in my return. My judgment is near, he says. It's at the very gates. The temple will be no more. The old covenant will be no more. And then he drops the big verse. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, this is where people lose their minds. Because if you believe that this is talking about Jesus' return, his second coming, then this verse makes no sense. And Jesus is a liar. And our opponents have figured that out. So they will bring up this verse and they will say, ha ha, where's Jesus? He lied. But if this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, that problem all goes away, doesn't it? This is exactly what Jesus is talking about, right? This word generation, and some people, again, in a dispensational kind of theology, or they're fully committed to that, so what do they have to do? They have to go into verbal Greek gymnastics to say that this word generation means other things than it actually means. No, it means one Jewish generation, about 40 years. If we're in about A.D. 30 right now, do the math, plus 40. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not a liar. Jesus is the truth. He puts a period on the end of the sentence, and he says in verse 35 that, guess what? My words will never pass away even if everything else does. The Jews, of course, rejected the Jesus, and they kept telling him directly, despite Jesus telling them directly, that he was going to come in judgment someday, even after he was arrested, and stealing from a future sermon. But look at Matthew 26 as I bring this to a close. Matthew 26, starting in verse 63. This is Jesus before the council, right before the, the crucifixion, right? Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says, yes, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and what? Coming in the clouds of heaven. He says, not only am I the Messiah, guess what? You're about to be judged, and you will see it happen with your own eyes. He's been saying the same thing all along. He's going to come. He's going to bring judgment on the Jewish leaders and they will see it with their own eyes when Rome kicks in their front door and burns the temple to the ground. He will also come again one day at the end. And so what do we do with all this? This isn't a passage to unlock secret timing of the end of the apocalypse, okay? It's a historical challenge for us to trust him. Be ready, he says. No matter what's going on, be ready. And I'll try and sum it up this way. Prepare now to trust Jesus to the very end. Prepare now to trust Jesus to the very end. When those towers fell in 2001, and over 3,000 people died in New York and D.C. and Pennsylvania, people were tempted to think it was the end of the world. When World War II continued on and Hitler murdered 6 million Jews, people were tempted to think it was the end of the world. And when the temple complex, with all its majesty and glory, fell to the ground in a burning heap, and thousands of people were slaughtered, 
People were tempted to think it was the end of the world. Jesus warns his disciples and says, not yet, not yet, but be ready. Prepare now to trust me to the very end. He says, my words will never, ever be untrue. In adversity, don't be deceived into being complacent. Don't be deceived into believing false theology. And so church, this again is not a passage for us to unlock the secrets of eschatology. We can't read the headlines into this. This is a challenge to trust Jesus and prepare now. Deepen your faith in him. Deepen your trust in him through being an authentic community with others. Take steps to kill sin. Jesus says, trust me. Take me at my words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Prepare now to trust Jesus to the very end. Let's pray. Father, we have gone through a tough and lengthy passage this morning, Lord. Help us to think well on these things. Lord, as we consider uh, the state of the world around us, sometimes we cannot help but be alarmed. We pray that we would trust you. We pray that we would wait for you. We pray that we would not give in to being complacent or to believing false theology, but we would do the work now to prepare to trust you to the very end. Would you sustain your church in the work of the gospel until you call us home? And we pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.